This morning we're going to read from Genesis chapter 50, one of my favorite passages in the entire Bible, about the life of Joseph. And as we're looking at this theme of grace under fire, if there is anybody who is the poster child for grace under fire or learning about grace under fire, it's Joseph. Starting with verse 14. After bearing his father, Joseph returned to Egypt together with his brothers and all the others who had gone with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph, saying, Your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are saying to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? And here's the key verse. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Let's pray for a moment. Lord God, I thank you for all the people who are in this room this morning and those who are joining us online as well. Thank you for the ways that you have worked in our lives. Some of those ways we are able to see as we look back, and there are some ways that you continue to work in our lives that we're not even aware of, we're not even conscious in the moment of the ways that you protect us, or guide us, or begin to set us up for a future that is better, filled with hope. I ask this morning that you would hear the quiet prayers of people who have come to gather here this morning and hoping to find some nugget of hope or some word of direction. You know the sorrows and the losses and the frustrations and hurts that we carry in our lives. You know the struggles that we have in our own spiritual development, the sins that are besetting and that hold us back, the guilt that nags at us. Lord, we want to release all of that to you. We confess to you that we are in need of the grace of God, that we are in need of your forgiveness. And we acknowledge that when we put our faith and trust in you, that you begin that process of transforming us and changing us to be more like Jesus. Free us from our burdens. Let us lay them down at the foot of the cross this morning and leave this place filled with grace, filled with hope, filled with a sense that we have met with God, we have wrestled with truth, and because we have met you here, that you have sent us out into the world freer, richer, stronger, wiser, more hopeful, more filled, more focused on your truth and on the mission ahead. So thank you for all that you do in our midst, not only in the hour when we're together, but all through our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. There's an ongoing debate at work among Christians and in our culture at large about the role of God. How does God work in the world? 
Is the God we meet in the Bible simply a passive observer who rarely, if ever, gets involved in our affairs, or is he an active God who is at work on our behalf? Todd Catteau, who's a pastor in Denton, Texas, neatly summarizes the four dominant views of God that are at work in our world. There is first atheism. Atheism is the belief that there is no God, he cannot possibly exist. Nature explains everything that is. And then there's agnosticism. Agnosticism says, well, we don't really have enough evidence to decide, so there's a hung jury on this question of whether there really is a God. Then there's deism. Deism is the idea that God created and left everything to work on its own. Uh, Sort of like God is the divine clockmaker or watchmaker. And once he set things in motion and he pushed the pendulum so that the the clock begins to swing, he just stepped back and he never interferes. And then there is theism, which is the belief that there is a God who creates, who reveals himself, and who actively works on behalf of his people. Many people in our culture invoke the name of God or claim to believe in God, but they have relegated God to something that has been called moralistic therapeutic deism, or for shorthand, MTD. Now, you may not have heard that term, but it's been around for a while. It was first coined in 2005 by a sociologist named Christian Smith, who together with Melinda Lundquist Denton wrote a book called Soul Searching, The Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers. It was published by Notre Dame Press. And after interviewing more than 3,000 teens, they identified a set of spiritual beliefs that are not exclusive to any one major religion, but that are rapidly taking hold in our culture. And now, nearly 20 years after that study, many people feel it's become the, the dominant faith in our country. And so over the years since that term was coined, others have described moralistic therapeutic deism as the dominant belief of our time. Here are the five convictions of moralistic therapeutic deism. First, that there's a God who exists, who created and ordered the world, and watches over human life on earth. Second, that God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other, as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. Third is the idea that the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. So the the theme song for this belief would be, don't worry, be happy. The fourth belief is that God is not particularly involved in anyone's life except when he has to come in to resolve a problem. And then the last belief is that good people go to heaven when they die. Now, that may all sound familiar to you, and it actually may sound very similar to what you hang your hat on. Here's the problem. Moralistic therapeutic deism is not the Christian message at all. It leaves huge holes in what God presents to us. Here's the point of going through that exercise. What you believe about the nature of God ultimately frames whether you have the capacity to embrace the concept of whether God is for you or not. If you do not believe that there is a God who is involved, that God cannot be for you because you've already excluded Him in your mind and in the way that you operate. Today I would like to present evidence from the life of a character named Joseph who's a major character in the book of Genesis in the Old Testament that God not only exists but that he works behind the scenes for the good of his people. This morning we're in part two of our Grace Under Fire series. That title came from a group of writers who help guys like me think about topics like this. I'm grateful for their inspiration and for the video work that we just watched that helped set this up. 
Last week we talked about how grace is with us. This morning I'd like to tweak that just a little bit and talk about how God's grace is for us. And as I mentioned, Joseph is the poster child for this whole concept of grace under fire and how we learn about it. So our question this morning is, is God really for me? Is God really for you? And if so, how can we know that? I mentioned last week that there's a theme verse for this short series, and uh, I got the, the address wrong in what I presented to you. My small group is really good to me. They tell me when I'm wrong, and I got the address wrong. I said it was James 1.7, and it was 1 Peter 1.7, but this is the verse. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So here's the theme concept. Your faith is worth more than gold. It's why it's so great that you're here this morning or that you're watching from your kitchen or your living room or wherever you are because your faith and how it gets developed is absolutely important to God as well as it is important to you. Here's the big idea for this morning. God is always at work for your good even when this is hard to see or believe. Our God is always working for your good, even when the events of your life, the circumstances you're going through, make it hard to see that or believe it. Let me walk you through this thought of how God's grace is for us, based on the life of Joseph. Number one, the Lord is for you when others are not. That's the first thing we learned from Joseph In Genesis chapter 39, verses 1 and 2, we read, Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him. Get that. Bought him. He's a slave. He bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. That opening statement in verse 1 summarizes a whole lot of trauma in Joseph's life. It says, now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Oh, it was a lot more than that. Joseph was the favorite son of a man named Jacob who had 12 sons. He was the 11th son born into a very complex, confusing family where there were four moms and 12 sons and at least one daughter that we know about. And there were rivalries and envy and bitterness and all the stuff that you can imagine with that kind of complex family. They were all shepherds and they walked over, watched over the flocks of their father. Joseph, along the way, as a teenager, had a series of dreams that alienated him from his brothers. In each of these dreams, Joseph saw his brothers and sometimes his father and mother bowing down and kneeling to him. And he wasn't sure what to do with that, but he told his brothers and they hated him for it, and that alienated him from them even more. Their hatred and jealousy grew so much that some of the brothers sold Joseph as a slave to some traitors. The truth is, some of them wanted to kill Joseph, and the oldest brother had talked them out of killing him, and they they put him in a hole in the ground, and while this older brother had gone off to try and let things cool down, some Ishmaelite traders came by with their camels and they sold Joseph rather than killing him and he was taken down to Egypt. And all in one fell swoop, Joseph had lost his family, his tribe, his standing, all sense of privilege, even his freedom. But in the midst of this great trauma, we learned that the Lord was with Joseph. 
that is probably the most important assertion that we find in these chapters about Joseph's life. Not only was the Lord with Joseph, but he prospered Joseph in every situation he endured. Did you pick that up in the, in the little bit that we read about Joseph's story here in, in the opening part of Genesis 39? That yes, he, he ended up into a situation where he was sold as an indentured slave, but the Lord was with him at every step of the way. He was with Joseph when he was a servant of the captain of the guard. And the Lord blessed everything that was under Joseph's care so that this captain of the guard named Potiphar was blessed too. Later on, Joseph ended up in prison And the Lord was with him there too. And again and again, the Lord blessed everything under Joseph's care. And Joseph rose from being a house servant to being a prisoner to serving as the Pharaoh's economic administrator during a massive famine that would one day send Joseph's brothers to buy grain from him in Egypt. The Lord still works this way today. No matter what life throws at you, part of what Joseph's story teaches us is that God is for you. Because God grants free will even to the most evil-spirited people on the face of this earth, bad things can and do happen in life. But God's presence in this life and His determination to work for your good is transforming. So Joseph was experiencing this transformational work of God even before he could possibly understand it. And that is often what he does with us. Before we understand how God is at work and how he's working all these pieces together and weaving them together, he is at work and he is for you even what seems, in what seems like the most bleak of circumstances. That's the first observation. The second along with this idea that the Lord is for you when others are not, the Lord is for you in all things and at all times. Let me jump ahead to the New Testament. Romans 8.28, written by the Apostle Paul, says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. Paul teaches in Romans 8.28 the principle that was played out in the life of Joseph. The principle does not say that all things in life are good. There are an awful lot of things in life that are very troubling and very distressing. But it declares that in all things, our God works for the good of those who love him. Joseph's jealous and hateful brothers brought about the first harm and trauma in his life. Later, a false accusation against him adds to this trauma. But the Lord is able to use all of these things even the evil intentions of other people, and he's able to superintend them toward his own purposes in our lives. And God works for the good of those who love him. Let's call this the God still works principle. God still works for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose today. We will see that Joseph came to understand this principle long before the Apostle Paul wrote Romans. Understanding this allowed Joseph to look at his life from a long-term perspective. He realized that God had been with him through all of the ups and downs of life. He recognized that despite the repeated demotions that he had gone through, the Lord had given him success as a servant in Potiphar's estate, success as as the prison warden, entrusted more and more management tasks to him, even while he was a prisoner. And then when he was lifted from prison to serve in the Pharaoh's government, even greater success through administrating 
brought about benefits, benefits that impacted the entire nation of Egypt. Joseph began to look back and see, and he saw God's hand in all of this, and he was able to see how God freed him from being consumed by vengeance. Seeing God's hand in all this allowed him to reconcile with his devious brothers. Knowing that God was working for his good all along transformed those difficult years of forced servitude and prison for Joseph. And he was able to see that God had been with him the whole time. Knowing that God had brought about good results in his life kept him from turning toward bitterness. Now, you may be thinking about your own life as you think of Joseph's example here. And you recognize that maybe there's been trauma in your life and there have been things that could cause bitterness in your life. And so I would need to say that embracing this principle is not necessarily easy. Yet when you do, it has a very powerful healing impact. During the past year, I was able to share the story of Joseph with a friend of mine who spent 11 months in prison. I visited him as often as I could, just about every other week. I spent an hour or so with him in prison. And during these visits, at one point, I shared the biblical story of Joseph, and we read the Genesis accounts together of how God was with Joseph and how God was for Joseph even in the midst of his confinement in prison. And it greatly encouraged my friend. He not only read this promise over and over, the next time we got together, he told me how he had shared it with others inside that prison. And these guys in prison were amazed that there were chapters in the Bible talking about how God had been with people inside of prisons. And they thought, wow, I didn't know that God did things like that. I didn't know that God worked in places like this. I didn't know that God cared about people like me. Now, the 11 months that he spent in that prison were not easy, but God did a powerful work in his life during that time that I believe will shape his life for the rest of his days to come. Do you know, down deep, this core truth about how God works in us today? Holding on to this principle that God is still at work in those who love him can change even the most difficult chapters of your life. Here's the big idea that I'm trying to get across this morning. God is always at work for your good, even when this is hard to see or believe. So the Lord is for you when others are not. The Lord is for you in all things and at all times. Here's the third lesson that we learn. The Lord is for you when the culture turns from God. There's a principle. This principle is taught in a number of places in the Old Testament scriptures. In Jeremiah 29, 11, we read these words where God is speaking. He says, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Jeremiah 29 is one of those amazing promises of God. I'll bet there's somebody here who probably has a tattoo that says Jeremiah 29 on your wrist or somewhere uh, in a place where you can see it over and over and be reminded of that. Many Christians today find hope from this verse. So it helps to understand the context of why it was written and what it truly means. We never want to take Scripture out of context, but sometimes when we know the context, it makes it even fuller and richer. The Lord gave this message to the nation of Israel as they were headed into a period of captivity. 
The reason was that the Lord was allowing the Babylonian Empire to destroy Jerusalem and to carry off the people. Why? Because the people of Israel, for a repeated number of years, had turned toward worshiping idols of the nations around them, even bringing the idols into the temple that had been dedicated to God. And at some point he said, enough. I'm not going to protect you. I'm not going to allow this to go on anymore. There's going to be some severe corrective punishment that comes. Yet, the Lord had not given up on Israel forever. And so he was announcing that after 70 years of captivity in Babylon, he would bring them back and they would rebuild the city. But he says, if you turn toward me during those years in captivity, I will come near to you and I will bless you there. And so this promise of Jeremiah 29, 11 was designed initially for the people of Israel who were turning back toward God in a foreign land. But it still expresses the heart of God today, that he has plans for his people, that he wants to prosper you, he wants to give you a hope and a future, but these words are spoken to people who have had everything taken away because of their rebellion against God. In the midst of this dark time, God promised to bless them if they turned back toward him. You know what that means? There is hope for every person who has shaken their fist at God, who's turned away from God, who's basically said, I know better how to run my life, God. I want your blessings, but I don't want your guidelines. I don't want your guardrails. I don't want your God truths. I want to just do it my way. But when you turn back toward him, he shines his face on you and he begins to bless you where you are. We have this amazingly redemptive God who continues to hold out hope for people who formerly said, I don't want you and your rules. I don't want you and your, guide, your, your, your guidelines. I want to determine my own affairs. This is stated in another way through the writing of the prophet Isaiah. There, Isaiah, who writes in the same time period as Jeremiah, He quotes God as saying, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Like Jeremiah, Isaiah was a prophet who warned Israel about the judgment to come. He warned Israel's kings and leaders about the consequences of their idolatry and rebellion from God. The nation would fall into God's judgment. Nonetheless, God wanted to bless those who were faithful even in those days of judgment. So the Lord was letting them know two things. First, that difficult challenges were ahead. And notice the the kind of dark imagery that's in these two verses. The waters would come, the rivers would come, the fires. By the way, just in case you're trying to be overly literal, this is poetic language. He's not telling you that you can pray a prayer to God and walk through the fire and you'll never be burned. That's not the point. This is poetic language as if to say there are difficult days that are coming, but I will be there with you. All right, every, nobody's going to be that literal here today, right? No, no, no fire damage, no sore feet tomorrow. The second thing he wanted to convey to them is that the Lord's presence would be with them in the midst of every challenge. And so you have this imagery of walking through the waters that are up to your neck, and yet the Lord is saying, I will rescue you. I will not let anything be so great 
that there's not a way out. This God works still principle was letting them know that God is at work even in the most difficult times of life for those who love Him, who serve Him with all their hearts. When you are concerned about the way that our culture is throwing off the biblical and moral guardrails that have blessed our nation through the years, hold on to this hope. God is able to bless those who serve Him even in the midst of days of judgment. God draws near to those who are faithful to Him in every age. Those who have been around for a while know that I avoid doing politics from the pulpit. Yet there are cultural trends at work today that should cause us great concern. The Lord is able to work behind these scenes for people who love Him and who follow His ways. And He will bless you in the midst of whatever comes and whatever difficulties we face. God is always at work for your good, even when this is hard to see or believe. And then here's the last piece of this puzzle. Knowing that the Lord is for you transforms the heart. Knowing that the Lord is devotedly for you transforms the heart and the way that we look at life. So we come to these powerful verses in the statement that Joseph makes to his brothers back in Genesis chapter 50. He says, you intended to harm me, but God, God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. And then he adds this to his brothers. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and for your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Here we come to the final portion of Joseph's story and development. It's richer than I can explain here in 25 or 30 minutes. But Joseph was lifted, uh, lifted from prison to power when he interpreted the Pharaoh's dream. The dream was from the Lord letting the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, know that a great famine was coming. And Joseph not only interpreted the dream, but he used his administrative gift to recommend a plan for using seven years of record harvest that were coming before the seven years of this great famine to prepare Egypt for these challenging times. The Pharaoh liked Joseph's plan so much that he put Joseph in charge of this massive nationwide administrative plan. And with that decision, Joseph was elevated to a position of power and authority over Egypt. But Joseph would be tested again when his brothers were impacted by that same famine. They come down from the land of Canaan, today is Israel, and they had to buy grain from Egypt. And to buy grain in Egypt meant you had to buy grain from Joseph. Now think of this. Joseph was 17 years old when his brothers sold him as a slave. He was 30 when the Pharaoh lifted him to his position of power. There were seven years of plenty that had gone on, and they were now two years into the famine, which means that Joseph is about 39 years old. 22 years have gone by since Joseph was sold as a slave by his brothers. And he'd been separated from his family and his homeland for that period of time. And if he wanted to be, he could have been stewing over all the trauma, over all the injustices that had taken place in his life. And so there's tension that builds in this story that encapsulates about the last quarter of the book of Genesis and revolves around how would Joseph treat his brothers when he finally saw them again. And we learn that Joseph did not retaliate or take revenge against his brothers. 
Instead, he invited them and their families to come to Egypt and to ride out the rest of the famine there. Years after their father Jacob had died, the brothers wondered whether Joseph would turn on them. And so when they come back from the funeral procession, having brought his fa- their father's body back to the land of Canaan and buried him, they come up with a letter. I think this is marvelous. I don't think that old Jacob had this letter pinned to his coffin, you know, for the oldest ten brothers in the family. Uh, here's what you're supposed to tell Joseph. I think they made this thing up. Dad wrote a letter, and we read the letter, Joseph. He didn't address it to you, but he addressed it to us. And you're supposed to forgive us for all the wrongs that we had done. But you know what's cool about this? It's the first time in this trumped-up, made-up letter that they acknowledged the evil that they had done, the wrongs that they had done. And the text here says that when Joseph read or heard this, when they read the letter to him, he wept. Why? Because they had not learned the principle that Joseph had learned the hard way about how God still works behind the scenes, even in the midst of all the trauma in life and the bad things that happen in life. And they hadn't seen how God had woven together all of these things, including their evil intentions. And Joseph could see that God had done all of this and allowed all of this to be worked out for his good and for their good. And it put Joseph in a place where he was literally saving the lives of his brothers and their wives and their children and their grandchildren. And all these people were able to come down to Egypt where Joseph was in charge of the world's largest food distribution project. And he was able to provide for his family. And he learned a tremendous amount about the grace of God. How God was building this understanding of how he is for us. As Joseph was being forged in the fire of all this trauma and all this testing. Joseph fully knew that they intended to harm him. But he saw how God had superintended all of those harmful desires with his own intention to use all of this trauma for good. Look at how God's transforming work in Joseph impacted him. There are four things that we see here. One, his heart. He forgave his brothers despite the way that they harmed him. Then there's his actions. He provided for them and for their families. Then there are his intentions. He reassured them of his good intentions, and finally his words, he spoke kindly to them. This is a picture of how God transforms the human heart when we give over all the brokenness of life to him and we welcome in his guiding presence and his grace in our lives. He transforms the heart that could have been oriented around bitterness and revenge and retribution. And instead, with his heart, his actions and his intentions and his words, We see Joseph as a fully formed person of grace. North River Church's vision statement reflects the transforming work of God in us today. This is what it says about us. This is our aspirational vision of what God is doing in our midst. People who are forever changed by God's love and daily changing the South Shore and beyond for Jesus. You know what that says? 
that we believe that we are people who are handing over all of the junk of life to God, all the trauma, all the things that have caused hurt, all of the unfairness, even the evil that other people might do, and giving it to God and saying, God, you are the great weaver. Weave this somehow into a pattern for good, not just for me, but for my family and for everybody that we love and everybody that we know and everybody who's watching online. God is ridiculously for you. His love never runs out. He never gives up on you, like we sang a little while ago. God is always at work for your good, even when this is hard to see. Do you believe it? Father God, we offer these words back to you, and we ask that you would continue to work out your plans for good in the heart and in the life and in the mind of every person here. Thank you for the story of Joseph. Thank you for the real world forging in fire of the grace of God in his life. God, we offer to you our hurts. God, we offer to you the trauma of our lives. And we ask that you would not only work it out for good in our lives, but that you would so thoroughly transform our hearts as we give our hearts and minds to you, that you bring good into the lives of those who are around us. Your blessings, your favor, your presence, your grace. And as we serve Jesus this week, allow the love of God to so thoroughly fill us. That it not only gives us reasons to come up with thanks on Thursday, but that you make us a blessing to others around us, no matter what goes on in the culture. In Jesus' name.